Boys. You're listening to a special bonus episode of Marvel's Pull List. I'm Ryan Panagos, aka Agent M, and on this special bonus, we're going to give you a little replay, a little uh, re-airing of a great conversation we had. One of our reading clubs where we dig into Marvel Unlimited. We pick a great book, we have a great guest, and we have a great conversation. I hope it's great. I think they're great. I like to think they're great. I hope they're great. Hope you like it. Uh, this episode, we have writer Crystal Frazier on, and we're talking about the first bunch of issues of Ms. Marvel. I mean, feels just like any time is a great time to talk about Ms. Marvel, but maybe like right now, this week is an extra perfect time to talk about Ms. Marvel. So if you're interested in Ms. Marvel, now you can listen to us chapter on about probably one of the best comic launches of the last 20 years. I said it. Live it, love it, learn it. Let's talk about Ms. Marvel right now. Members of the Mary Marvel Marching Society, please welcome game designer, writer, artist, all-around creative person, and someone that we are going to dig into some real good comics with, Crystal Frazier. Hey, Crystal. Hi. Thanks for having me on the show, Tucker. Of course. Of course. I'm very, very, very excited about this one. And... It's something I think about often when it comes to Ms. Marvel, when it comes to this run, because as the years pass, this is one of those that stands greater and greater and greater in the pantheon of Marvel Comics. So I just wanted to hear just right off the bat, we're talking about Ms. Marvel, the first five issues from 2014. What made you pick this comic? I mean, I just, I really love G. Willow Wilson's run on on Ms. Marvel, This the, the first first volume I, I i don't know what you call it specifically um but i think it's just an amazing run of comics i think it speaks really well to our generation and it's one of the few times in comics you see a female character who's not trying to be cool or rather who's who's trying to be cool but the writer knows she's not cool and as as a female comics fan who is not cool i can really <laughs> empathize with that <laughs> Well, you're in good company. None of us are cool here. Um, I want to get into this. Our producer, Jasmine, always likes to see if our guests can give a 30-second summary of the story that we're reading. This run of Ms. Marvel, the no normal first five issues of the run. Starting in three, two, one. All right. Ms. Marvel, no normal, is a story arc where lovable nerd Kamala Khan is trying to reconcile trying to be a normal American teenager while she's also surviving as the daughter of immigrants from Pakistan who have a more conservative outlook than she does. Uh, The first time she sneaks out at night and disobeys her family, she is caught up in a superhero event that grants her powers and battles an evil cockatiel. (laughs) (laughs) Right under the wire and got in the the evil cockatiel. Perfect. Yeah. That was great. Evil cockatiel's the real moneymaker. Yeah, in so many ways. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love that description because while we do get eventually in the last two seconds of that recap, we get to evil cockatiel. But the first 28 seconds are about family. They're about parents and kids and the relationship and being a person and the difficulties and struggles of what that's all about. Well, I mean, would anybody care about Spider-Man if Peter Parker weren't such a lovable dork? Right. I mean, that's the thing. The origin story of Kamala Khan, these early issues of Ms. Marvel 
are the modern day equivalent of Amazing Fantasy 15, of early Amazing Spider-Man. They are that good. It captures whatever that ephemeral, impossible to describe thing is in the air and they put it into a comic book. I don't know what it is. If if anyone knew what it was, (laughs) we would get 10 of these a year, but we don't. Wilson knows what it is. She wrote it. (laughs) I I would love to give her 10 more books a year. (laughs) Um, You and me both. Yeah. But yeah, I've I've said it repeatedly on my Twitter feed. Good isn't a thing you are. Good is a thing you do is our generations mm. with great power comes great responsibility. So perfect. Yeah, we should uh, make sure we, we give the credits to this run. So we're talking about Ms. Marvel issues one through five. It is the No Normal collection. If you're reading it on Marvel Unlimited, it's really easy to find. It is written by G. Willow Wilson, art by Adrian Alfona, colors by Ian Herring, and letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. And important to note, edited by Sana Amanath, who is also co-creator of Ms. Marvel alongside Willow and who's a friend and I adore her. So I hadn't read this in years. So revisiting it was so great. And we're going to talk about everybody involved in this. But one of the things that blew me away is just how absolutely incredible Adrian Alfona is in this book. Oh my gosh. All right. Oh, the art is just so, so rich and expressive and just gets across every little detail about how characters are feeling. And so full of vibrancy and energy and it's sort of the world around Kamala complements the way Willow writes Kamala in a lot of ways. It's weird. It's kind of quirky. Jersey City is a little off. It's funny. It's got personality and it just the world that Adrian draws feels like its own character. And I think that's an important thing because when you read this series, Kamala so tied to Jersey City. It means so much to her that, of course, it has to be its own character. Of course, it has to be something that you connect to in a very special way. It's similar to the New York City of Marvel Comics that is important to the many of the characters. Jersey City is so crucial to Kamala. There's so much love. You can tell he has fun with backgrounds, whereas for a lot of comic artists, drawing the backgrounds is sort of the the chore part of the job <laughs> but like he fills in so many details there's you know junk in the streets there's labels on all the boxes and the shelves the thing i always remember from the first issue is badgerade which is a a soft drink <laughs> or or energy drink they sell over at the circle q it's just there in the background in like half the panels that are set in the circle q so to dig into ms marvel a little bit more crystal when was the first time you read this series do you remember Oh, yeah, I was picking it up as it was coming out. I've been a big fan of Captain Marvel back when they were calling her Ms. Marvel. It was terrible to me when they stopped the run. But at the same time, the relaunch where she rebrands as Captain Marvel is amazing. And then they announced we're going to do sort of a spinoff of Ms. Marvel with this new character. And it's she's a teenage hero. I got really excited I hadn't heard of G. Willa Wilson at that point, but all of the art I'd seen coming out for it looked amazing. So I had my comic shop pre-order it for me and sign me up for a subscription site unseen. And I had gone in thinking it was a going to be a sort of a cosmic book because it was coming off of older Ms. Marvel and all of the concept art Kamala was posing with her stuffed animal, which looked like a weird little alien in boxing gloves. So <laughs> it's definitely a different book than I was expecting, but I was not disappointed. I don't know if it's weird to say, but when I started reading Ms. Marvel, I was one of those sort of 
insufferable atheists who thought faith was a terrible part of the human condition. And I left the series thinking, oh, I've really misjudged what faith means to a lot of people. And I credit Wilson for really helping me grow out of being quite a jerk. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. The fact that a great comic helped you connect a little bit to that part of yourself to see that is really neat. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I grew up in central Florida where you're surrounded by a very particular flavor of Christianity. And it was something I decided young that it was not for me. It was something that was actively harmful to me. So I shut it all out and was very confident and smug in my own superiority for having shut it out. And, you know, kind of let that smugness blind me to the fact that it is something beautiful and important to a lot of people. I'm always so curious to think about just the general milieu in which someone grows up and whether that's a natural conduit to being creative, to being into comics or something like this. Did you have a local comic shop growing up in Florida? Were you going, were you reading comics on a, you know, a weekly basis? When did that start? I mean, I've been reading comics since I was little. My mother got comic books for me when I was first learning to read because we didn't know it until years later, but I was dyslexic. So the all capital letter word balloons and the balloons separated out made it so much easier for me to read. I could get into comics when I struggled with print books. So my mom would just bring home comic books from the supermarket or things like that, which is how I ended up getting into Ninja Turtles at age four. (laughs) Also how I learned to swear because it was the Mirage Ninja Turtles. That's the good stuff. (laughs) But yeah, we had a a local comic shop where I grew up that, oh gosh, I guess they went out of business when I was 13 or 14 in junior high. And that's kind of when I had to stop reading comics or at least new comics until I went to college. And then of course it was a college town. It had a comic shop. But for me, it was escapism because, you know, especially being a little queer kid in a rural farm town, I didn't have a lot of friends. So most of my time was spent, you know, reading books, reading comics, watching TV, writing my own stories, things like that. You're you're like the perfect person. If someone's like, comics are are bad for you, like, no, look at all the good (laughs) that comics can bring to someone's life. It's great. Was the fact that you grew up in Central Florida, you said yourself, you didn't have many friends, you were going, you know, to the local comic shop, you're reading, you were creating these worlds in your head. Is that the pathway that you would describe to the career you have today? Or is it a little bit less simple than that? I mean, it's a little more roundabout, there's more twists and bends, but that is really the core of it. I I needed space to escape and comics gave that to me. I needed I need people like me to look up to and comics in it unintentionally gave that to me. I'm part of the Marvel Pride anthology that came out. I read a story in there about basically what She-Hulk meant to me growing up as, you know, I was a little trans girl and I knew by 12 or 13, I was a girl. I just I looked like a boy and then I hit my growth spurt and I ended up six feet tall and fairly muscular. And I thought I'm never going to be attractive. And then that's about the time I found Sensational She-Hulk. And this was a woman who was six foot 10 and muscular and she was funny and she was loved and she was confident. And I just poured so much of my self-worth into that character. 
I fell in love with the genre pretty early on and always wanted to write comics, to draw comics. I'm not a very good artist, but I tried anyway for a while. And that kind of led to me working in the games industry as a writer. And that sort of led back around to writing comics. I really dug the She-Hulk story in the Pride Anthology. It was, it was really sweet. When someone reads it, I think they will really dig it. I hope so. <laughs> yeah, it, it was great. Um, I did want to talk a little bit more about your work in the role-playing space and like the gaming space and all that stuff. I think it's cool. And I don't have a lot of insight into what the process is of writing for stuff like Pathfinder and those types of games. Um, is it a linear type of storytelling for your the way you go through it? How is that like? I mean, I, I like to make a joke that uh, writing for RPG adventures is like writing for comics, but easier because you only have to write half the story. Mm. <laughs> There's similar creative skills of, you know, figuring out the world, figuring out characters and their motivations. But there's this void where you you can't know what your heroes are going to do once they step into the situation. So you you need to flesh out your side characters and your villains and your monsters well enough that the game master at home can figure out what do I do when my players go completely off the rails? There's a lot more time spent on developing villains or developing the stakes or developing the world than you necessarily have in comics. That's kind of cool because I probably, I, I imagine that that fosters a lot of connection from the players with the worlds around them. Because of course, you know, you're creating your own character and you're going and you're questing and all this stuff. But when you have creators who are putting so much work and life into all the other parts of the story, because you need to, I, I would imagine that that's gotta be pretty cool for a player. I mean, I think so. I mean, any given RPG only exists in one person's head. It's only in the player that's experiencing it. So each player at the table has their own version of the campaign and the world in their head. And you're just kind of trying to provide enough of a common language that everybody can communicate. Your experience in this field, I feel like it could give really good insight into on just on the most simple level in a game, getting a player or in a comic, getting a reader just getting them into the story, pulling them into the story and just getting them to care about the characters and about the stakes and about who these people are and why they should be invested, all of these things. And that is so applicable to what we're talking about today. I mean, with this first issue or the first story arc in general, I would just love to hear your thoughts about the work that this issue and, and these five issues does so concisely to instantly get you to know Kamala and her family and her dynamic with her friends and, and her different circles and why that's so effective. The conventional wisdom in games, at least, is you need some kind of opening encounter that the players care about, something that gets them excited or invested, give them some small-scale goal they can all relate to and some opposition to that goal. The gag in the industry is orc and pie. The idea being the goal for a first encounter is there is a pie in this 10 foot by 10 foot room. Well, everybody wants to eat pie. Okay, but there's an orc guarding the pie. <laughs> and so you just sort of blow that up into whatever scenario you want. You present something that, you know, in half a sentence, your players want. They want to rescue the kitten. They want to eat the pie. And then you present some obvious obstruction to that. 
often orcs, but not always. Uh, <laughs> and I think I think that small scale buy-in is really important with comics writing, fiction writing, something like that. You need something immediate that you can relate to with a character. You need to pick up on their goal and their personality. I think the very first appearance of Kamala in Ms. Marvel is her bending over the sandwich counter at the circle queue being like, oh, delicious infidel meat. <laughs> and it's like, in one word balloon, you get that she's religious, so she can't eat this, but she wants to eat this. And that she's, you know, got this way with words. She's clever, she's fun, she's she's lighthearted. And that is, you know, in one word bubble, everything there is to Kamala besides, you know, her love of family and friends. I think it just kind of feels like you're, you're sort of in the back of Kamala's mind along for the ride. And even when she makes bad choices, you understand exactly why, and you know you would have made the same bad choices. Like yeah. you're you're just so connected to her and what she needs versus what she wants versus what she has the chance to do. Even in the first issue where she leaves her house after curfew and she goes to the party and you know she gets involved with all the the, the kids <laughs> and the, the all the the Michigas that's going on there, but then she gets to the mist as she's walking home and she sort of passes out and then wakes up and has that, like the hallucination. Was it Captain America speaking Urdu? Yeah, it's Captain America <laughs> and Captain Marvel is uh, like singing the way I, I read the the text bubble. She's like singing in Urdu and Iron Man is holding her, her pet sloth with the wings. And it's like the <laughs> porcupine dude is there and like, a you know, like there's a bird with a hat. It's like all this stuff. That to me is one of the most wonderful splash pages of this run it's so out of left field for what many people think of for marvel of like they put this on the page and i think it really lands it's so it's funny and it's weird and it's sweet and it's so perfect for kamala's story and like as she develops like you say crystal you're in so like the back of her mind along for the ride and you're all like what's happening and i love it I love this first issue. I think it's such a stellar introduction. It's not a lot of comics that have zero action in the first issue, and yet you still feel like this is a superhero. Mm. There is a panel where Kamala is explaining how she would, if she got superpowers, what she would do and how she would wear Ms. Marvel's <laughs> old costume. And she's like doing this- big like, platform boots. Yeah, she had the big <laughs> platform boots and the way that Adrian draws her with her lip curled up it's like man <laughs> it's just phenomenal it's so it's, good it's exactly how all of us have posed while imagining being superheroes <laughs> yes. and it's exactly the face we've all made and the thing that gets me that made it feel like a real teenager is uh her hallucination of captain marvel saying you've got some kind of boot fetish <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah it's subtly daring in those ways where like you said, Ryan, it's not the usual picture of not just Kamala's world and like her life, but of like her vision of what superheroes are, of who superheroes are, of her relationship to those people in her world that seem so unreal and then very quickly become very real. And the other thing that I always come back to, this is another thing and, and why I'm so happy that we're spending the time talking about this is we talk about G. Willow Wilson, we talk about Adrian Alfona. But we have to shout Ian Herring's name from the rooftops in terms of his contribution to 
just truly what makes this book so special. These issues are so full of personality, but it's all sort of presented in this way that, I don't know, it feels like a sort of Terrigen mist itself to me when I'm reading it. I just feel so at home and cozy and happy when I'm reading this. And I think a huge part of that is Ian's colors, which are so beautiful and so perfect. Yeah, it feels like all of the colors feel like they're coming from light that is coming through a dust-dappled sunbeam. Mm. Mm. That's the perfect way to describe it. I totally, totally agree. And it's one of those things that when I think about this run, one of like the thought experiments I have is like, I'm trying to imagine it with a different colorist and different colors, bolder colors, sort of richer hues that are really pop off the page, so to speak. And that's something that we talk about often with comics. It's like, oh my God, look at these colors. They're so amazing. Look at how they just jump off of your screen on Marvel Limited or whatever it might be. But this is sort of the opposite in that way. And that's what sort of, I don't know, it just helps you settle into this world. I just couldn't love it more. I want to give also a shout to Willow for taking a word that I only knew from an episode of The Simpsons and turning it into a Marvel superhero catchphrase in Biggin. I forgot that was from The Simpsons. It may be from something else on top of that, but Willow seems like such a pop culture junkie where she probably, like many of us, watched The Simpsons and when she says in Biggin is as she's discovering her powers in this book is Kamala is learning about it. And I think Tucker, to your point, you were talking about amazing fantasy and, and, you know, the first appearance of Spider-Man and there's the, you know, because of the way comics were, it was like, you know, two pages of Peter figuring out he could do this and he builds his web shooters and he's like, like learning all his, his abilities right away. Where in this, over the first five issues, we're growing along with Kamala as she figures out what her powers are, how they work, how her healing works, how her growing works, how her shrinking works, what she might need for her costume. And like even the beautiful covers by Jamie McKelvey, where you see her like final hero costume, we're not there yet. We like build up to that point and you see how she gets from point A to point, you know, X of that really amazing final costume. It's one of those great things. It's it's really wonderful origin story, top to bottom. Yeah. She's just a warm, sort of relatable character doing her best. To look back at something like Gamma Flight, Crystal, or other work that you're doing. I'm curious just generally of like your broader inspirations. And I, I ask that because I think it's perfectly clear that this run, these first issues are like hugely influential and will be even more influential as we go into the future as the people who were reading this and in years to come will be the comic creators of tomorrow. I'm just curious for you to transition this conversation from one about where you grew up in the past and all of those things to looking more to the future. Like, do you look at certain comics and take inspiration from those? Do you look into the world of games? Are you someone who likes movies and TV or I don't know, performance art? Like where do you go to fill up the well in that way? I mean, I mean when you're a writer, you can't help but sort of look at everything you consume and think, oh, that's a good way of doing that. Or, well, that's not how I would do that. It ends up being a thing you can't quite turn off. Uh, but 
just to sort of restock my well, one of the things I love is comics and animation aimed at not necessarily little kids, although sometimes little kids, but like that eight to 12 range, because there are things that I think the companies that produce them know we're kind of targeting this at adults, but we also want it to appeal to kids, you know, eight to 12, and also ideally a little lower. So you have to be very considered in how you present, you know, plot points and develop characters and things like that. Uh, a great example is uh, Kipo in the Age of Wonder Beasts on Netflix, where you have this whole world, you know, this whole world to develop where, you know, there's very clearly some horrible things in the past, like, you know, genocide, slavery, uh, you know, all kinds of very heavy topics, but it's presented in a way that's not going to be or it's presented in a way that makes you understand the stakes and the damage done without being graphic or, you know, needlessly, you know, shocking just for the sake of being shocking. And it's it's a storytelling challenge that I love to see how people navigate. You mentioned growing up and loving She-Hulk and there's been some incredible She-Hulk stuff in the past few years i mean thinking of avengers it's been such a wild ride with that character and i think we're, we're probably headed into an even greater she-hulk renaissance in the months and years to come but you know you talked about that being one of your favorite early reads and things like that are there other characters that that you love and or as a writer you would love to get your hands on <laughs> I mean, my number one goal, and my editors know it, is She-Hulk. Yeah. That is where my eyes are set. And <laughs> I don't know if you're ever going to hear from me again. I hope you do. But <laughs> uh, that is definitely something I am going to bug Sarah and Will about at every opportunity. Uh, but I mean, obviously, everybody loves Spider-Man. It would be amazing to, no pun intended, write Spider-Man. I loved the Fantastic Four when I was younger, but they have such a rich, well-developed whole universe at this point that I haven't kept up on since the early 90s that I I do not think I could do them justice. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm kind of a big nerd for the Ninja Turtles. Would love to write that someday, but Sophie Campbell is doing such a great job on it right now that I couldn't even imagine trying to replace that. I was a giant X-Men nerd growing up, like everybody who was, you know, a tween in the 90s and being able to write an X book someday would be amazing, uh, especially Dazzler or Rogue or Gambit. Nice. Speak on that. Speak on your love for Gambit real quick. You don't, you uh, don't, you don't have to. It's quite all right. We need uh, not talk about Gambit. We got Gambit a big Gambit fan all. over here. Ryan. We're, we're totally, you know what? Oh, look at the time. He was that naughty bad boy at that age where... You know, I was really into Naughty Bad Boys <laughs> and he's got the accent and, you know, it was the 90s. We thought those haircuts were attractive. It was a different time. <laughs> I love I love any like explanation or rationalization of just being like, hey, man, it was the 90s. OK, what do you expect? Look, our options were the head sock or frosted tips. All right. <laughs> I appreciate any celebration of Gambit that also insults him. So great job. There. I, I, I do appreciate. Oh, that. yeah. I really like what you were talking about, Ms. Marvel, I think is a great title that can fit into that. Yeah, it's kind of aimed for maybe a young adult, but can be enjoyed by anyone of any age. And I think if a kid picks it up, that's one of those things, like if a little bit younger reads it, will 
probably connect with a bunch of things. And then five, 10 years later, we'll come back to and be like, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, I I do love that sort of, that sort of not universal appeal, but the complexity, the layers, something that appeals on a surface level. And then there's more deeper down that you can appreciate as an adult. I have no idea how they ended up putting me on a, a basically a very heavy horror book when my other writing credits are like young adult, like <laughs> young adult romance. <laughs> well, in its own special way, like being a young adult is just a, one long horror story. Yeah. Oh, I, <laughs> I could get into horror stories, but I don't think this is that kind of podcast. <laughs> but, you know, I think that there's a, a very apparent depth to your storytelling even in, you know when you when you read Gamma Flight, just everything around Rick, I thought was so sad and sweet, and there's such care there. I feel bad for Dell. He's had a really rough couple of years. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and there's some really great sequences in that first issue. It's all I've read so far. It's all I could speak to, and I think, you know, you say maybe you've got this, you know, the romance and the YA stuff, but clearly, you, you can do whatever you can do. You, you got it all. I mean, Al did a lot of the heavy lifting on on that book. He knows the characters a lot better than I do. He knows all the lead into it. So a lot of that credit goes to him. I, I just provided some witty dialogue. <laughs> I mean, that's something I, I, before we wrap up here that I, that you mentioned, and I am super curious about. This is something I've said about Al Ewing for years. Ryan has heard me say it ad nauseum, which is his brain terrifies me because it is so expansive and enormous and capable of so many powerful things. Um, uh, I, I'm curious if, if you know, I don't know if this is a thing where like the issues that we've been talking about themselves, they're hard to really grasp when you're in the moment, when you're in the thick of it. Maybe you can contextualize it in retrospect, but can you quantify or speak on like what you feel like you have learned from working with Al in such a close way. I mean, just, you know, working with one of the best writers around, it's it's incredible. Yeah. I imagine this is what it feels like to be Albert Einstein's lab partner in science class. <laughs> um, like, I'm, I'm not dumb. I'm not a bad writer. But, like, the way Al's brain just connects all these little things so quickly... We, we did, you know, one-on-one -on -one brainstorming in Zoom calls to kind of work out, you know, what we wanted to happen and what characters we wanted to use and what kind of arc we wanted to go through. And I feel like I've made some good contributions, but we ended up bouncing ideas back and forth so much. There's a lot that, I mean, it's a better book than I could have written on my own. I think Al could have done just fine without me, but I think he also appreciated the like, if nothing else, somebody there to write half the pages. <laughs> um, and I think, I think my experience writing romance comics and those touching moments kind of helped a lot when he was coming off of Immortal Hulk, where things are very dire and heavy. I think, I think I got to sort of breathe a little bit of levity and a little bit of healing into a bunch of these characters. But yeah, working with Al is. I mean, just the way he thinks from the start of page layout through, well, how do we want the letter to bold and punctuate specific things so that, you know, the panel doesn't feel crowded. He's just kind of got it all going on in the back of his head at any moment. It's scary. 
Yeah. Oh, Plus, <laughs> he's got an entire database of Hulk from issue one just right, right. loaded in the back there. <laughs> yeah. Now that he's he's wrapping up, it's just he's just gonna click a button. All the Hulk falls out. It's just <laughs> then he starts loading in the Venom and loading in the the other things that he's working on. <laughs> guys wild whatever he works on next i'm happy to follow <laughs> uh and we'll be happy to talk to you again have it come on the show hopefully again talk about some more books hopefully you get to write those those characters except for gambit that you were really into <laughs> and uh yeah. i i feel like i feel like i could do the book where gambit finally comes out of the closet and transitions to be a woman really well now we're oh, hell talking. yeah <laughs> Let's do this. Yeah. He is trying too hard. I'm just going to say it. <laughs> oh, my uh, God. This is too spot on. I love it. Uh, <laughs> all right. Um, Crystal, thank you so much for coming on the, the show. Uh, thank you for chatting about Ms. Marvel and so much more. Uh, and hopefully we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Crystal. Big thanks again to Crystal Frazier, who joined us for this conversation about Ms. Marvel that originally aired in September of 2021, um, but we liked it so much we gave it to you again. Um, this has just been a bonus episode. If you want more of Marvel's pull list, of course, we'll be back next week with one of our regular episodes where we run down all the brand new Marvel comics out that week, and we do a reading club. I'm just going to say this. Next week's reading club, it's really friggin' good, you guys. It's so good. It's two episodes long. I'm going to leave it at that. I'll see you next week. I'm Ryan, and this is Marvel, your universe.